Warriors, Tansei Sego, Ani Buju, Queen Indaluizi Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, and practices. It's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And part of living our sovereignty includes using our laws and governing powers to protect all peoples and living things in our territories from exploitation and abuse. And the last few weeks, we have all seen horrific acts of violence from the police. And not just a few bad apples, but literally widespread, unfiltered police violence targeting Black peoples and now spreading to the elderly, disabled, children, and anyone supporting Black Lives Matter. The police are literally displaying the very acts of racialized and unprovoked violence that Black and Indigenous peoples have been reporting for decades. During these historic protests, it's critical that we, as Indigenous peoples in the resistance and resurgence movement, stand in solidarity with our Black brothers and sisters because Black Lives Matter and other community groups stood by us when we were idle no more, Wet'suwet'en strong, and marching in the streets against the police killings of our people. This week, we are so fortunate to have with us another social justice warrior, Robin Maynard, who is a Black feminist, writer, activist, and prolific educator. Her book, Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to the Present, was published by Fernwood in 2017 and is literally the go-to source right now to understand the context of anti-Black racism and violence by police in Canada. I've been following Robin's advocacy work for years and have had the privilege of being on a media panel with her to talk about racism, which you can watch from her website. She has a blog, she publishes articles, she teaches, she does public speaking, and has literally been going nonstop these last few weeks, educating the public and setting the record straight on all of the myths associated with police violence against Black people. She's a real force. We are so lucky to have you here today. Welcome to the show, Robin. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Pam. It's an honor to be here. Oh, it's, it's an honor to have you again. You did, you're just doing so well. It seems like you are literally covering everything in the media. And of course, we are all benefiting from learning your knowledge. For those people who might not know you, maybe you could give us uh, a little bit about you and your background and your advocacy. As you know, my name is Robin Maynard, and I am the author of the book, Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to Present. I'm also a teacher. I'm also an activist and organizer in different ways. Um, I wrote the book Policing Black Lives really because I had been doing frontline, uh, frontline advocacy and harm reduction work over several years, over almost a decade in Montreal, and was just seeing that, you know, the experiences of black people in terms of, you know, supporting women going through the child welfare system, having their children taken away, of uh, helping people, you know, go to court who'd experienced uh, violence against them, and of course, you know, being treated with, either, with, with utter neglect. Um, you know, trying to support people again who'd experienced police violence and trying to get any kind of, you know, thing called justice around that. And also visiting Black women, Indigenous women in prison. Um, and so that was a lot of the kinds of work that I was doing from a harm reduction perspective and just seeing and witnessing the rampant injustice, the rampant state violence and state neglect every step of the way at every state institution 
the reality of that is it was so jarring, especially given you know the media context in which black people either do not exist or anti-black racism is only a question. It's never, you know, it's never a statement. And I was involved in a lot of different organizing, you know, with families, for example, of people who'd been killed by the police. We were part of a group called Justice for Victims of Police Killings, um, trying to advocate for some kind of justice for people who'd lost loved ones to the police and largely only experienced, you know, repression or total abandonment after that. So I think that my writing has always come out of a place of uh, frustration uh, and of the desire to educate, of the desire to really um, make clear what I saw as kind of a lack of comprehension in a lot of the public realms. Policing Black Lives in particular is something, um, you know, it, in many ways it was about looking to the incredible breadth of Black produced knowledge and scholarship that was already there to give a historical narrative that would help us to make sense of the presence of Black peoples, you know, being incarcerated at vastly disproportionate rates, shot and killed by police at vastly disproportionate rates, having kids removed from uh, child, you know, child and family services and in schools. But we often talk about how, you know, this is an untold story, the untold story of slavery in Canada, the untold story of segre segregation in Canada. And that's absolutely not true, right? We have incredible horse historians, black historians, you know, in this country, of course, vastly far less than we should employed in universities, far less than we should with tenure track positions, but an incredible body of work uh, by people like Charmaine Nelson, like Harvey Amani Whitfield, like Barrington Walker, who've done that powerful and important and nuanced archival retrieval that can tell us a very real and detailed and rich history of you know, the enslavement of black peoples in this country, of you know, the work of Sylvia Hamilton really gets uh, gets us close to understanding the ways that segregation of Black communities happened in Nova Scotia. So in some ways it was about weaving together some of this really incredible historical work that we'd had to make sense of the presence of the hyper-surveillance of Black peoples in public space, in private space, really anywhere that Black people go, so that we could make sense of the ways that Black communities, Black men, Black women, Black children, Black cis and trans people, Black gender non-conforming people are surveilled, are profiled, are harmed, um, by a multitude of state institutions. That context is so critically important for, you know, you see on social media today, people saying, you know, oh, we have to do something about this particular event. When in, when in fact, this, this isn't an event, this didn't just happen, this isn't just a few issues. Your book really goes through the entire history. That has been known. The problem is, I think many people tend to be willfully blind, and the state knows it all too well, but have not done anything to deal with that, which leads to continued police killings of Black people and theft of children. And we know the impact of what happens when you steal children and force them into foster care system that statistically they're more likely to end up being exploited or abused or end up in youth corrections. And then this vicious cycle um, of, of impoverished socioeconomic conditions through no fault of their own. And, you know, we're looking now at the police killing of George Floyd and there's so much noise in the media about what happened and what didn't happen. And I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about that. Like what is the most important thing that people need to know? about the police killing of George Floyd in the US? I mean, I don't know that I could speak to the most important thing that happened to George mm -hmm. Floyd. I think that what happened is, you know, it's an act of race, racial violence that's so egregious, um, that's so horrific, you know, kneeling on somebody until they die, right? Over the course mm -hmm. of, of eight minutes. 
and you know, of course, we're seeing these massive protests in response to this killing. But I think that what we're seeing, uh, this massive eruption of popular anger, of popular rage, is about, of course, this horrific event, this horrific, uh, you know, act that we need to really understand as a lynching, right? It's the only real way to understand what took place there. But of course, the revolt across American cities, and of course, I can't speak for every protester, but is about the broader expendability of Black people's lives, the broader systemic issue that George Floyd's death represents part of a crisis that has been erupting across North America since the like, since the history of slavery up into segregation and into the present of the broad scale dispossession and expendability and long-standing acts of violence against Black peoples that, of course, in the context of COVID, where we know that Black communities are being vastly disproportionately impacted, um, that really it's about who gets to live and who gets to die and who gets to live well and who gets to live a life of dignity in North America, in the United States in this context, right? That people are also revolting against. So I think, of course, it's a horrific act, but it's also about what the act represents because what happened to George Floyd really represents the position of Black peoples living in the United States at this time. And we know it wasn't just George Floyd. Several weeks earlier, it's Breonna Taylor and Eric Garner and... I mean, there's literally thousands of people who've been killed just at the hands of the police. And that's not even talking about the over-incarceration rates or the assaults or the harassment or carding or racial, racial profiling. But for those in social media who seem to think that that's a U.S. problem, we also have similar police anti-Black racism in Canada. Toronto, actually disproportionately at extraordinary rates of Black people have been shot and killed by police. I mean, Andrew Loku and so many others. And then now the, the recent death of Regis uh, Korczynski-Paquette really raised questions about Canada. And I, I'm wondering if you can talk about generally about this police racism and violence against Black people in Canada and the United States. Absolutely. So I think that, you know, the United States and Canada are not identical countries, and it's not helpful for us to pretend that. But we do need to understand you know, the broad scale continuities of the violences of the transatlantic slave trade and slavery and, you know, the attendant policing, the violent development of policing uh, in the Americas as something that is profoundly anti-Black, that is itself a kind of anti-Black and racial violence, which is what policing is in its core. I want to be clear, it's not only about over-policing, about disproportionate policing, about police brutality, but policing itself is a kind of racial violence that we can really see evolving out of, you know, historical uh, historical institutions uh, and acts such as genocide, settler colonialism, and slavery. Right? That these are the these are the histories that carried into the creation of this institution and are still marking it into the present day. So, if we look to the historical development of the policing of Black life in Canada, it's really helpful for us to turn towards actually. Uh, a historical era before policing as we know it today, where we know that under enslavement, if we look to, you know, Charmaine Nelson's research and others, that enslaved Black people were already under suspicion, were already uh, profiled, were already surveilled when moving through, through public space, um, because it was thought or believed that they could be uh, run away, that they could have, you know, be guilty of the kind of stealing themselves, what Marcus Williams calls self-theft, right? That there was already a criminalization of Black peoples moving in public space, even when, um, you know, even before Confederation. So if we look to the fact that, you know, there were, there were newspaper notices that would describe Black people who had thought to, who had, 
who had uh, escaped, you know, their masters, who had insisted that they were people and run away that would describe them physically. And that would mean that actually all, uh, all of white society, all slave owners and, you know, the early forms of police were those that were all looking for uh, black people deemed to be criminals, right? So that this is something that's very much at the very founding and origins of the place that we now call Canada. If we look into the early 20th century, we see already the vast disproportionate racialized kinds of policing. We see the policing of black peoples as well as indigenous peoples and those who were not racialized white at the time, like the Irish uh, being vastly disproportionate. We see it as already a kind of racial violence and already as a kind of economic violence. We also see that black women in particular were seen as sexual deviants for being in public space. We see the policing of black women uh, as far as you know, presumed vagrancy or prostitution related offenses, again, um, in the 19th and early 20th century. So we need to understand that even before the period of very high profile police killings, which of course, over the last 20 years, uh, the CBC report Deadly Force, Deadly Force shows us, you know, police killings have gone up uh, significantly, right? But the policing itself was always a kinds of racial uh, racialized project. Um, if we look towards the 1980s, we really start to see, you know, racial profiling being embedded much more intensively within policing as far as criminalization goes, with um, Operation Pipeline being brought in from the United States, which is a way of really viewing uh, Black people as being suspicious, as being likely to be uh, drug dealers, drug traffickers, drug mules, right? And that led to a massive a huge boom in incarceration across the board, but particularly for black peoples, right? From the late 80s till the 1990s, uh, the war on drugs was not only something that took place in the United States, but also took place in Canada, despite the fact that black and white communities, of course, you know, have historically used and bought and sold drugs at relatively um, equal rates. We saw a massive, massive, massive boom in black incarceration because we know that crime is not so much about breaking the law, uh, because, you know, by one study, 40% of all youth have broken the law, but 40% of all youth are not in juvenile detention, right? We see Black youth, we see Indigenous youth, so it's really about profiling, it's about looking and finding um, those perceived to be criminal and then tr criminalizing them within the criminal justice system. So the policing of Black communities in particular has been something that activists, organizers, family members have been decrying, you know, since the 1970s in Toronto, we can look at the police killing of Buddy Evans, for example, um, Albert Johnson in the 1980s, you know, there was the creation of groups like the Black Action Defense Committee in Toronto that have been decrying anti-Black racism and policing for decades and decades, right? Um, the year that I was born, 1987, was the year that Anthony Griffin was killed in Montreal. He was just a young Black, uh, a young Black, I would, I would hesitate to even say man, very young, you know, uh, who was shot in the back by police in Montreal. There were massive uh, community protests, uprising, um, and organizing that happened against then. But what we do is we constantly act as if it's new. The media constantly acts as if it's a surprise that black communities are out in the street denouncing racist violence, as if it's somehow the first time uh, that Canadians have heard of this issue, even though particularly since the 1980s, we've seen a vast increase in the way that black people have been, you know, not only policed, but have been shot and killed and beaten by police. So CBC uh, uncovered recently that black communities in Toronto are about 8% of the population, but are 36% of police fatalities. An Ontario Human Rights Report came out recently that showed that black people are 20 times more likely to be shot and killed by the police in Toronto than by white communities, right? So we're looking at kinds of just egregious violence that are woven into the fabric of day-to-day -day life for black communities. 
And of course, death is not the only outcome, right? If we look to the fact that disproportionate police stops, which we see, uh, you know, measured by studies across the board in Montreal, Halifax, Vancouver, Lethbridge, across the country, those also lead to, uh, those can lead to violent interactions that are not death, but those can lead to arrests, those can lead to, you know, time spent in jail, losing access to your children, like all of these are, can be life-changing, life-altering events. So we need to understand the surveillance of black communities more broadly, the policing of black communities more broadly, as itself a kind of violence and that historically enduring violence that has been in place really for centuries if we, if we really want to understand this phenomenon. I'm really glad that you raised facts around the, the ways in which black women experience this too, because they can be shot and killed by police, physically assaulted, over-incarcerated, you know, lose their children. And prison acts like a life sentence, essentially. It, it forever impacts your ability to get employment and, and take care of yourself. But there's this other dimension around sexualized violence by policing for Black and Indigenous women that doesn't seem to get the same amount of attention. It, it, Black and Indigenous women seem to be viewed as exploitable with almost 100% impunity. Policing in general seems to be allowed to, to kill, assault, incarcerate, and, and sexually assault Black and Indigenous peoples with almost 100% impunity. I mean, that's why we really need to think, I think I really appreciate the point that you're bringing, which is that policing itself is an institution that is in, in many ways outside of the law, right? It's functionally outside of the law. There's no other situation in which uh, this many people could be dying at the hands of, you know, teachers, or other public servants, um, and that this would be considered morally acceptable. There's no reason, you know, the fact that we, that our society is now taken for granted that somebody can be having a mental health crisis, call for help and end up shot, and that this is just sort of collateral damage of an institution shows us how far, far gone the acceptance of this very violence institution has gone into our society. The Toronto started an expose on Ontario's special investigation unit called the SIU, who are supposed to probe police involved deaths and serious injuries. Uh, to ask whether police were above the law. And it showed that out of 3,400 SIU investigations, criminal charges were only laid against 95 officers, 65, 16 were convicted, and only three had seen jail time. So that's uh, 0.5% of officers ever being convicted. Now, I want to be clear that much as, you know, we often, you know, people talk about the conviction, the at least the criminal charges against the officers who killed George Floyd as a kind of justice. But if we understand more broadly, the criminal justice system itself is not a place of justice, right? So even if, you know, there used to be this chance, uh, indict, convict, send those killer cops to jail. But if we understand jail and the criminal justice system as themselves, you know, settler colonial institutions, as anti-Black institutions, it, it makes more sense that, of course, these are not the institutions in which we would find justice, in which, you know, policing, for example, would... Uh, where police would somehow find some kind of accountability. And I also think that the demand for, you know, really thinking about black liberation is something that to me extends far beyond like what it would mean to, to convict uh, police officers within, again, a system that is, of course, a system of racial violence, that jails and prisons themselves do not keep us safe, that even jailing, you know, killer police officers would not keep us uh, safe because those institutions are, are, again, outgrowths of, you know, the afterlifes of slavery and you know, the living legacy of settler colonialism, if we look to the vast pop population of incarcerated Indigenous people, of incarcerated Black people, 
So I guess I just want to be clear that, mm -hmm. yes, the police are functionally above the law, that there is quite literally a sense of impunity uh, that is part of, you know, what's called the oversight system. And that, you know, justice would mean something far beyond uh, police officers being jailed. Like it's far more effective for us to struggle towards an end, towards the end of policing, the abolition of the institution of policing than it is to advocate for some kind of, you know, justice served for those officers who are proven to be violence, when of course we know how unlikely it is to be proven. And of course, you know, the creation of the SIU, the Special Investigations Unit, came after, you know, decades of Black community struggle to have some kind of accountability measure. And then what we saw, of course, is this co-opting of the radical demands of struggle. We saw a special, you know, a unit that ended up being created largely of ex-police, of people with ties to police, um, who of course, you know, continued not to charge and to acquit officers, that it really is not that extended independent arm that it uh, is, is technically described to be. And I was part of efforts in Montreal um, with the Justice for Victims of Police Killings to push for some kind of civilian um, oversight. And we really saw the price that we paid for, for advocating for that because eventually they did create something called the Bureau d'Enquête Indépendante, the BEI. And again, just like the SIU, we saw it staffed with largely ex-police officers. We see that already there have been, you know, allegations of lack of independence, of really, you know, uh, continuing to allow officers to commit these egregious acts of violence. So I think it really showed me personally, as well as the research more empirically shows us that these so-called independent bodies uh, are really just another vehicle to allow police impunity to reign free. Well, exactly. And impunity in a wide variety of ways, not just criminally, but being able to keep their jobs, being able to be paid and keep their pensions and or being made a cabinet minister in some government. There's a whole list of ways in which they're not held accountable. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about some of the solutions to addressing all of this. You've mentioned this concept of abolition and we've heard now calls for defunding the police. And I want to explain those two recommendations. Absolutely. So the way that I think it's helpful to think about defunding the police uh, is thinking about it as a step towards abolition in a broader context. And I just want to be clear that, you know, these are not ideas that are coming out of nowhere. There are people who have been involved in the United States, for example, Black Lives Matter in LA has been pushing for years uh, for, an in, for a divestment from policing and an investing in community that in Chicago, that in New York, you know, people and thinkers like Andrea Ritchie, like Marianne Caba, uh, Black feminists in particular, uh, those two and so many others have been at the forefront of really asking us to think about what it would mean to live in a police-free world. And I think the first part of really understanding abolition in that sense is, you know, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore and others put it, is about changing the conditions of uh, not only about, you know, closing police um, stations and dismantling police and prisons, though, of course, you know, that is a really important goal, I think, for our collective liberation, but thinking about what it would mean to have the conditions in a society uh, for, for genuine safety, right, where safety was not understood as these armed, you know, poorly trained white men patrolling neighborhoods with their guns, but if, what would it think about for us to, for people to actually feel safe in their neighborhoods? So the push to defund police is not only a negative, it's also about asking for a vast redistribution of social funds, right? If you think about the amount of public money at this time that goes into the institution of policing, nationally it's $15 billion, in Toronto it's over a billion dollars. Now this is 
vastly more public money than goes into community housing, than goes into shelter, that goes into community outreach and harm reduction. I mean, exponentially, right? Um, on a regular sort of an average tax bill, according to the municipal budget of last year, uh, of $3,000, and a homeowner would pay over $700 for the Toronto Police Services and about $100 for shelter, community housing, all of that, right? So we see it's not even comparable the amount that our society invests in the repression um, in an institution that is foundationally violent. I mean, I, I spoke about its historical iteration. Um, if 50 to 80 percent of calls to the police, which Stats Canada tells us uh, are about things like domestic violence, are about issues like mental health, drug use, overdose, these are all issues in which police are actually more harmful, are exactly escalating and increasing the violence. We know from the death of Regis Karshinsky Paquet, of DeAndre Campbell. Uh, you know, these are two black people who died recently in the context of mental health uh, crises where the police were called in DeAndre Campbell's situation. They were called by him and they ended up dying, right? So we know that these are, the police are actually a deadly solution to these kinds of issues. So it's about not only, of course, defunding this institution that is, you know, in itself a kind of violence against our communities, but it's saying, well, what would it mean to create alternatives? What would it mean if you were having a mental health crisis and there was a rapid response of people that were trained in, in mental health and de-escalation? What would it mean to have you know, community-supported anti-violence initiatives for people that were experiencing domestic violence if somebody could come to your house who wouldn't you know, arrest you if you were a, particularly a Black or Indigenous woman if you needed support or arrest you know, the person, but actually to help you get out of the situation to find safe and decent housing? It's saying that we as a society have the capacity to meet, uh, to meet these, these very real needs in a manner that is not through punishment, right? So a significant amount of policing and criminalization is really the policing of poverty, right? And poverty adjacent crimes. So as opposed to saying that as a society, all we can imagine to do is, you know, send the law enforcement officers to ticket and jail these people, what would it mean to look at uh, housing, safe and secure housing? Um, what would it look at decriminalizing drugs, uh, offering a safe supply, for example, to manage the overdose crisis, as opposed to criminalizing people who are already, um, you know, experiencing uh, state violence, right? So it's really just about changing the way that we think about safety and thinking about safety in a, a vastly more generous way, in a vastly more collective way. Um, and that is a way, I think that that's why it sounds quite radical to talk about police abolition, but it actually, if you really think about the way that we've been managing as a society collectively up to this point, like it's, it's morally unconscionable that we would continue knowing what we do with the generations, you know, of failed studies, of failed reforms, of things like body cams, of things like diversity training or now implicit bias trainings, that this is found that this is an institution that can't be reformed, and it's about thinking about what it would mean to reduce the scale and scope, reduce the budget, and start to move to what it would mean to create a police-free world where we actually met people's needs as opposed to criminalizing, beating, and killing people. That's an incredible vision for the future, and, and in some ways already in place in many communities in terms of communities supporting one another and grassroots groups that are trying to provide these kinds of supports so that there isn't intervention by the police. How important solidarity is with Black communities right now? I think that at this time, it's very clear, like what we're seeing is, of course, a really Black-led revolt across North America, but it's also multiracial, right? We're seeing people out in the streets, uh, many, many, many Black people, many racialized people, but we're seeing people out in the streets more broadly, um, of course, denouncing anti-Black racism, the violence of policing, 
and we're also seeing a demand for just a radically shifted society like ending the police murders of black community members is something that, that that stands to impact not only black people black people might be disproportionately harmed but it's also poor white people with mental health issues it's many other communities right that are being impacted um, by police killings so all of these strands of black liberation of looking at defunding the police and creating collective safety of course these are about black freedom but they're also things that would be liberatory force you know for the vast majority of, of people living today so i think it's about understanding that everybody's liberation is collectively entwined in what is happening right now and of really getting out and supporting the creation of a different you know a different meaning of security of a different kind of world of not going back to the pre-covid uh level of you know society where we saw that black people were made disposable that indigenous people were made disposable and expendable and instead trying to build something different thank you for sharing that and and thank you for all the work that you do to help educate the rest of us it's an unfair burden that it always seems to fall on the shoulders of those most impacted by racism to educate others it seems like this is an important part of our resistance and i i want you to know i stand with you in both solidarity and action and will continue to do my part as an Indigenous person to support Black Lives Matter and Black communities in seeking justice. And I want to thank everyone on the Warrior Life podcast listeners for tuning into my show. It's important that we stand in solidarity with Black Lives Matter and, and grassroots Black activists who are doing their best for social justice in this community. And I'll post a link to Robin's website where you can access her blog, publications, videos, and book. That This is about pushing for the radical change that is long overdue and that won't come in just a day or a few days of the media highlighting this. We really need consistent and contained action. So thank you, Robin, for taking the time and whatever I can do to support your advocacy work, just let me know and I'll do that. Thanks so much. And it goes both ways. I really respect you and the work you're doing, Pamela. So thanks, thanks again for having me on the show. Thank you. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Well, I'll leave.